0: Our gospel lesson for today comes from John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was at hand. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get just a little. One of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, "'Gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost.' So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, "'This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world.'" When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's not enough. That's how the widow responds when this scraggly prophet shows up in the town gate asking for a handout. There's not enough, Jesus. That's how Philip responds after calculating how much it would cost to feed 5,000 people on a moment's notice. There's not enough, Jesus. That's how Andrew responds when the disciples' search for food yields, yields a meager result. There's not enough, Jesus. That's how we respond when we feel called to do something that is too difficult or costly, or painful. There's not enough Jesus. And yet, in both our stories for today, there was enough. There was more than enough. So what happened? There's a fairly common explanation for the miracle story from John, the only miracle story, by the way, that is captured in all four of the Gospels Perhaps you've heard this explanation before. The disciples scour the crowd, looking for something, anything they can use to feed them. And no one admits to having anything except for a little boy who says, well, I have five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus begins to divide up this tiny, preposterously small amount of food. And then someone in the crowd thinks, well, I've got a sandwich that I was saving for later, but I suppose I could split it with this woman over here. And someone else thinks, I don't need to eat this whole apple. And yet another person realizes, this cheese could be divided up among my little group here. And before long, this whole crowd of people is sharing what they have, and it turns out that the people who thought they had so little actually have so much that there's 12 basketfuls left afterward. The real miracle, according to this version of the story, is that Jesus got people to share. I have a four-year-old, so I have respect for that miracle. And it seems to me like a very reasonable explanation of how this miracle happened, especially for people like us who live in the post-Enlightenment world where we tend to think poorly of miracles and look for scientific explanations. If the Red Sea split in two, it was because of a a unique weather pattern that had wind blowing at just the right moment. If the widow at Zarephath's flower never dried up, it was because her neighbors were sneaking into her house to top it off when she was outside. If the whale really saved Jonah, it was due to random chance coupled with the prophet's ability to hold his breath for a really long time. If Jesus healed people, it's because he knew more about hand hygiene and antibiotics than his contemporaries. Now, these explanations might seem reasonable, but they also seem to completely miss the point. The point of these stories is not how it happened, but what happened The point in our story for today is that Jesus fed people. Whatever else happened, Jesus happened. I get that expression, Jesus happened, from a book by Sarah Miles called Take This Bread. It's her spiritual memoir, and she is a self-described lesbian left-wing journalist raised by atheist parents who one day, for reasons she can't exactly name, finds herself walking into an Episcopal church. She walked in, took a chair, and tried not to catch anyone's eye. A man and woman in long tie-dyed robes stood and began chanting in harmony. There was no organ, no choir, no pulpit, just the unadorned voices of the people, the long silences framed by the ringing of deep Tibetan bowls. Sarah sang too, and then, she says, it crossed my mind that this was ridiculous. We sat down and stood up, sang and sat down, waited and listened and stood up and sang, and it was all pretty peaceful and sort of interesting. Jesus invites everyone to the table, the woman said. And we started moving up in a stately dance to the rotunda, It had some dishes on it and a pottery goblet. And then we gathered around that table, and there was more singing and standing, and someone was putting a piece of fresh crumbly bread into my hands, saying, this is the body of Christ, and handing me a goblet of wine and saying, this is the blood of Christ. And then something outrageous and terrifying happened. Jesus happened to me. Jesus happened to Sarah, and what that means is that her life is never the same. Somehow she has more life. She becomes a faithful, if somewhat reluctant, worshiper at St. Gregory of Nyssa Episcopal Church. Her experience of communion leads directly to her efforts to start a food pantry at the church. Her experience of being fed leads her to want to feed others. And perhaps God knew that food and feeding would be the doorway that would lead this self-proclaimed atheist to more life, to a life of faith. You see, during her time as a war correspondent, long before she entered that church and Jesus happened to her, Sarah learned to eat whatever she was given by whomever she happened to be with at the time— It wasn't, of course, what I ate that mattered, she writes, though the details of what I was fed have stayed with me, vivid as dreams. The mineral taste of poor people's tortillas, their thick dough prepared with lime and scorched on an iron griddle, the slippery sweetness of mangoes, the chemical bite of bright red sodas, the funkiness of goat, handfuls of gluey rice spoonfuls of milky sherbet, cupfuls of spicy broth. The impulse to share food is ancient and basic, and it's no wonder the old stories teach that what you give to a stranger, you give to God. When she first read about the prophet Elijah who was fed in the village of Zarephath by a starving widow, Sarah suddenly got a picture of that story repeated over and over, tumbling down through thousands of years, repeating at every turn, that's like the time we found fruit in the forest. That's like the woman who'd made me tea in the town. The fact is, Sarah writes, people feed one another constantly from their own bodies, their own plates, their own inadequate stores of insufficient food. Food is what people have in common, and it is precisely common. Whether it was a fast food frozen chicken nugget or an unadorned chunk of carrot with the earth still clinging to it, what mattered to her was not what she ate. What mattered to me in those years, she writes, when everywhere I was wasn't home was that I could launch myself into a morning, an unknown town, a war-torn zone, and be fed usually by strangers and sometimes by comrades, occasionally by enemies, but always by someone who was as hungry as I was or hungrier. We had hunger in common, and we had food. Sarah had a special understanding of what it means to be hungry. She also knew the value that a food pantry would bring to her neighborhood. But it wasn't easy to accomplish. She had to meet with the chair of the church outreach committee, who explained they would need more funds and volunteers than they already had. She had to meet with the church staff, whose responses ranged from over my dead body to when hell freezes over. She had to appeal to congregation members who worried that it was hard enough to keep the church clean as it was, without visitors, outsiders traipsing through every week. All of these responses could be boiled down to one simple objection. There's not enough. Well, I hope you'll be intrigued enough to read Sarah's book, Take This Bread, and I also hope it's not too much of a spoiler to let you know that despite the objections of not enough, that the food pantry did get off the ground and is a huge success to this day. Over the years, church volunteers have been joined by volunteers from the community. Men and women who received food from the pantry now serve it to others. And rather than using the fellowship hall or a gathering space, they use their own sanctuary. The very table at which they are fed during communion is the table at which they feed others, giving them goods and produce. And if you read the book, you'll get an explanation for how it happened, but at the heart of the matter isn't what happened, it's who happened. Jesus happened. In that place where it seemed like there wasn't enough, Jesus created more life for the people. Now, I always try to answer in my sermons the question, what can I do for this week, pastor? It's something one of my seminary professors instilled in me. I often try to figure out how we can apply the biblical story to our lives to help us to be Christ's hands and feet, as St. Teresa of Avila put it. I believe wholeheartedly that what we say and do here in worship, we should do and it should affect us in our lives outside of worship. Just as the bread on the communion table is linked to the bread at our kitchen tables and the bread that we share with those in need. And so I've wrestled this week with a fundamental question. Will the world ultimately be transformed by human efforts or divine intervention? Will hungry people be fed by other people or by God? Should I preach practicality, that we ought to give more to the food bank, or miracles that God will provide? If we lean too much on the practical human side, then eventually there's no need for God. But if we lean too much on our faith in God's action, then eventually we forget that we too have a role to play. And so, I fall somewhere in between. Ultimately, I believe God will feed the hungry, and just as in our gospel lesson for today, I believe God will use us to do so. So if you are hungry for healing or wholeness or truth or wisdom or connection, then you are invited to this table. And as scary as it might sound, maybe Jesus will happen to you. Amen.